our wonderful Heavenly Father. Thank you, Father, for a Sunday. Thank you for the fact that you've given us this regular routine and that you command in your scriptures that we would give attentiveness to this routine, that we would make priority for it, that we would give ourselves to the time and the gathering. And, Father, it is a a source of wisdom to us that we would heed those words, that it would bring us to this place on a regular basis. And it's not, Father, for the sake of routine or ritual. We know that. We know, Father, that you have wisely chosen to give to those in your body various gifts and that when we combine those gifts and we come together and worship in spirit and truth, we see the wisdom. We see the power of it. We feel edified. We were taught. We receive the prayers from from others in the body that we need. We hear of needs so that we may respond in providing the things that are needed elsewhere. These are the things you've made possible, Father, because of the body and because of the spirit living in us. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you that we would have that benefit that you've given to the body. And, Father, as we sometimes find need for, we, we will receive what you give us in your word today, even if it causes us to think twice about who we are and how we live. And then at the same time, I ask that you would give us something to encourage us forward and to see how you have worked already in our lives and that you continue to work. Like a father to a child, Father, I pray that you would be instructing us even as you correct us, like you did through Paul to this church so long ago. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, speaking as a father, I can say that there are times when you have to pick your battles with your kids. You have to pick your battles. You can't fight on everything. You can't choose to make everything an issue. So if they're acting up, sometimes you'll let a few things go by without chastising them because you just don't have the time or energy to devote to doing it every time something comes up. Plus, you end up exasperating yourself and them over time. And I think also sometimes we know our kids can't bear to hear all the things they are doing wrong. You have to space out the critiques over time because... Honestly, if we wanted to be perfect in our critiquing, if we wanted to pick at every detail we could, there'd be an endless list from everyone, right? That's the nature of human flesh, is that we are weak in many areas. But there are going to be times when our concerns are serious enough that we can't afford to overlook them in the lives of our children or in the lives of anyone that we steward. And so as hard as it may be, our obligation as a parent, in this case, would require that we walk our children through their errors and correct their behavior. That's really part of the job. Of course, we have to do this in such a way that we encourage better behavior. We don't crush their spirit. We find a way to demonstrate to them the consequences of their poor judgment while at the same time holding out for them a better way that they can learn to follow. Now, Paul, we can say, was the father of faith for those in the Corinthian church, and that he was the one who brought them the gospel. He was the one who founded the church there. So, by logical extension, it would fall to him to be the one to admonish them, to offer correction and teaching in the face of their repeated errors. I mean, we haven't gone that far in this book yet. We're only in chapter 6, and yet, isn't it remarkable how many different ways this church is amiss? In basic things, things that you and I might consider to be basic elements of good Christian living, it's, it's really a good reminder for how far off the mark a church can go over time if it is not counseled by the word of God and corrected or led by sound men and women of faith. And that was the situation in Corinth. So in what we just studied so far, Paul has corrected them for their prideful associations in the beginning of the letter, then for tolerating immorality in the church, and then for failing to hold believers accountable for their sins. 
You can also see how one error leads to another, can't you? I mean, look at that cause and effect. You've got pride and arrogance, which leads to tolerating sin. And then you've got tolerating sin leading to a failure to hold members in the church accountable. And then, because no one in the church is holding anyone else accountable, when there is a dispute in the church, they're taking it outside the body and they're going to the judges in the pagan courts of Greece. That's what we read last week. So when we see this pattern, we come to recognize that you really don't disassociate one issue from another. You need to see them as a chain of cause and effect in the church. Last week, when we saw that example of them trying to resolve disputes outside the church rather than within the church, and we ended in verse 7, Paul said, that these believers, if they had known better, would have rather have been defrauded by their brothers and sisters, should it come to that, than that they would have gone to a public court to resolve those differences. Our witness, we said last week, our witness and our eternal reward are worth more to us than anything we could hope to gain from one of those disputes in a public court. Now, let's pick up there, because as I said, this is a continuous chain, and Paul is going to take this topic today, and before the chapter is over, he's going to have connected it to a yet another issue, the fourth issue we're following, that is of how they are failing to see themselves as different from the corrupt world around them. And in verse 7, where we left off, I'm going to reread that and go to verse 8 to sort of complete the thought that Paul was engaged in then. Read with me in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. What Paul says in a nutshell is, The Corinthians were losing at their own game. They were asking pagan judges to grant them victory over their brothers or sisters in the Lord concerning some dispute. But meanwhile, they were all losing ground with another judge, with the judge of all creation. Paul says they should rather have lost that earthly contest, should it come to that, so that they might preserve Whatever greater honor they are due in the kingdom for their obedience. Peter says the same thing very succinctly and very powerfully in his first letter. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 through 23. He says, This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there... If when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Notice what Peter says. We find favor with God when we bear up under the sorrows of suffering unjustly. And when we do this, we are following in the footsteps of the Lord. We are called for this very purpose, Peter says. In other words, what Peter is saying is to reflect Christ in our life, And to do it in the way Christ himself did it, that is to bear up under unjust suffering, is our reason for our calling. It's the reason we're living on this earth for a time 
as a witness of Christ. And so that would remain true whether we are suffering at the hands of the world or, regrettably, even at the hands of our brothers and sisters were it to come to that. And then Peter sums it up this way in the beginning of chapter 3. He says, in chapter 3, 8 and 9, he says, To sum up, all of you, speaking to the church, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So he says, we cannot respond to a sinful act with another sinful act. Mothers have great wisdom on this same point, don't they? Two wrongs don't make a right. When you do this, when we do this, when we take the insults we might receive, including from within the body, and we take that as justification to strike back, sort of an eye for an eye attitude, then we have forfeited whatever blessing we might have received for being willing to bear up under that. So back to where we started. It is a choice between get something now in unjust manner or forego that so that we might receive something in eternal terms that God would appoint as the result of his favor, Peter says, or as that blessing we might inherit, Peter says. It's like we teach our kids. If you've wronged, this is what we taught in our family. If if you wronged your sibling, but that sibling chose to take action into their own hands and struck back at you, the one who struck was the one who was going to be in trouble. If you did nothing in your defense, then you could be sure we would come in and we would do the right thing by you. But if you struck back, then all, all bets are off at that point. Now you're both in trouble, and the one who struck had the bigger burden to bear. Paul is concerned by the notion that this church is harming itself in the course of these disputes. But I would argue that his bigger concern, his primary concern, is the absurdity of believers going before sinners to resolve these judgments. The reason Paul started this whole issue, the reason he brought it to their attention, was because they were going outside the church to resolve these disputes. The church apparently didn't grasp the degree of distinction that exists between the believer and the unbeliever. And so that's Paul's primary concern. And it leads into the next topic, the fourth issue in this church, to the next sin in this chain. And the next sin then is verses 9 through 11. And that is to the question of how distinct the church is from the world. He says in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, and, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So Paul asks a very traditional rabbinical question. This is a rhetorical question that rabbis would often use to introduce a new teaching. It isn't intended to be answered. It's rhetorical, but it's to suggest this is something you should know. And his opening statement is, or do you not know? Very rabbinical tradition. He's asking the church, don't you recognize what you should know? Which is that the unbelieving world is excluded from the future that we will know. They are on a different course. The only reason we are still among them is because the rest of God's timeline has yet to play out, but it is only a matter of time. These people are on a different course to a different destination 
and are not a part of the church. And yet Paul says, these are the people that you go out seeking approval and judgment from. They have something to offer to us concerning judgment matters. You know, sometimes I think we tend to sweep these differences under the rug, so to speak. We, we tend to do, I think, what Paul is concerned about here in this church. We all have friends. We all have acquaintances. We all have neighbors, co-workers, classmates, family members, certainly, who have yet to place their trust in Jesus Christ. I dare say there's not a person in this room who couldn't find someone in one of those categories who is not a Christian. And we enjoy their company, I'm sure. We have made strong attachments to these people in many cases. And so naturally, we tend to see the good in them, and we want the best for them. And that is a perfectly fine heart attitude. We may think that they will be with us in heaven as well. We may think that in some way God will overlook their sin, and that may happen for them. But it will only happen in the same way that it has happened for us. That is, if and when they come to faith in Christ Jesus. But meanwhile, as Paul tells the Corinthian church in verse 9, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And what he means is, don't be deceived into minimizing the profound differences that exist between believers and unbelievers. Don't overlook that reality. You and I share nothing in common with unbelievers save the sinful flesh we temporarily occupy. They cannot see what we see. They cannot know what we know. They do not understand what we understand. They cannot share in what we have without faith. We might hope and pray and work even to see them come to that faith because we care about them. But until that happens, we cannot be deceived concerning who they are and who we are. If we become deceived, then we could arrive at the place that this church has apparently arrived at and has caused so much concern for Paul. We could come to see, for example, unbelieving courts as our superiors in judging disputes. And like I said last week, we are not saying that a Christian cannot subject themselves to the governments of our society or to the courts that they set up. Paul says clearly in chapter 13 of Romans that we must do that. We're talking about issues in which we have elected to go to that forum rather than to remain in the church. We're talking about situations in which we have a choice as opposed to those when we may not. When we have a choice, we ought to say to ourselves, what group of unbelievers can offer to me the judgment that I know I could receive through the spirit's counsel in the hearts of believers within the church? You see, this isn't a matter of schooling or expertise in a secular sense, this is an issue of judgment and wisdom. Is God capable of using the church to bring all matters to conclusion in a proper and righteous way, should he choose to? Self-evidently, he can do that. The question is, will we rely on that? It's not beyond the realm of reason for us if we had two Christians in a dispute over property, over business matters, in a marriage, in the case of a husband and wife, to come to the church and say, judge between us on these matters. And do so because we know that you have the wisdom of God and that's who we seek our answer from. We want to know what God would tell us when we go before an unbelieving court or an unbelieving counselor or anyone who does not know the Lord. What are we receiving in terms of wisdom? We only can hope to receive what the flesh can offer. What would you rather have? We have to be careful about becoming deceived into seeing the unbelieving world's values and achievements as greater than what God provides through his spirit. 
We may, if we're not careful, we may even begin to think that the unbelievers' behaviors are good examples for us as well. And that's why Paul lists so many sinful behaviors in this list that he gives describing the unrighteous. He says, these are those who practice such things. He lists things like fornication, which is sex prior to marriage, idolatry, which is worshiping false gods in any form, adultery, which is engaging in sex outside of an existing marriage. Then he mentions effeminate and homosexual. This takes just a second to explain These are both references to homosexual behavior. In Greek society, they had two different words for homosexual behavior, one to describe each person in a homosexual relationship. We don't make that distinction today, at least not with these kinds of terms. So for us, you can just say they're synonyms for homosexual behavior. Then he goes on. Thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and completes the list. These are all behaviors that are typical of unbelievers. Now, to be clear, Paul is not teaching that if you commit any of these acts, you are somehow automatically an unbeliever, or even worse, that you somehow have lost your salvation. Those would be wrong interpretations of this part of the Bible, and it would ignore the rest of the Bible if you come to those views. Clearly, a believer can be guilty of these things, and at times will be guilty of these things. Paul is speaking in broad terms of how unbelievers routinely live. And they engage in these things, a practice, if you will. It is a common experience of unbelievers to live this way. Paul teaches this here, but John teaches it probably most clearly in 1 John. Listen to what 1 John says, 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Speaking to the church, John says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. I think it's interesting John starts this section with the same thing Paul did. Do not be deceived. He says the same thing. Don't be deceived. John says the children of the devil and the children of God are obvious, to use his word. Because each will live according to his or her nature. Take note of those patterns and appreciate them and you will not be deceived. Now, we're not saying you'll be able to discern perfectly who is a believer and who's not, but that's not the point. That's not even the point of Paul's letter either. He's saying understand that saving faith sets believers on a new course where these kinds of behaviors will fade compared to where we were before faith, and in their place will come new behaviors. And that walk of sanctification will go in various ways for various people. We understand that there will be differences one person to another. But don't be deceived. Look at the broad patterns. Take stock of the fact that we are going somewhere the world is not going. If I collected people from around Austin, unbelievers I'm saying, and I compared those unbelievers to those of you sitting in this room, do you not think I would see differences in their lives versus your lives? On average, overall, on balance, I certainly hope so. And I'm confident I would. And not because you're a bunch of great people. (laughs) Neither am I. But because the spirit who lives in us by faith is causing us to think and live differently. On that scale, Paul and John are talking. Not on the individual scale of me versus someone else, but on the whole, on the averages, if you will. Do not be deceived. We are clearly different and moving in a different direction for a reason. Paul says those who live 
according to such behaviors, who enjoy them, who practice them, so to speak, are of a different sort. We, on the other hand, have been called out from them. We've been justified. We've been sanctified. We've been set apart by the Spirit. And so Paul reminds the church in verse 11 that their church, the Corinthian church, but every church is made up of former fornicators, former adulterers, former idolaters and all the rest. But the important word there is former. By our faith, we have been washed clean of those sins, whether past, present or future. We are no longer living in the flesh. We are now to listen to the spirit. We are to be in the world, but not of the world, as the saying goes. And so we are not to rush back to that world when we have a need for something that is going to counsel us or show us what is right. It just makes no sense, does it? As I mentioned earlier, one bad behavior or one moment of poor judgment frequently will lead to more problems. And that's true in this case. So as we leave this issue and we move into this next issue, notice that the first mistake of the Corinthian church was forgetting that their faith had made them fundamentally different than the world around them. But then as a result, that leads to a far worse sin. They are now in danger of following the sinful behaviors of the Corinthian society because they hadn't recognized how different they really were. So we move from a failure to judge behaviors and then a seeking of judgment outside the church. And now, Paul says in the next item on his list, in verse 12, that they are now engaging in sexual immorality within the culture, presumably because they didn't understand how much their faith changed them in areas of this sort, in in choices of this kind. Look what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Paul is introducing his concern here on the fourth point. And he begins by quoting and then actually modifying a well-known Greek proverb from his day. The Greek philosophers of, of Paul's day had always maintained this minimization of the importance of the body. They had said that philosophically the body is a temporary thing, so it matters not what you do with it. And so they claimed that the body would be separated from the soul one day. And the only thing God cares about is the soul, the eternal part. And so there was another Greek proverb that said that the body is a tomb. And these things were meant to reflect their view that they had no concern over the body. Epictetus once said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. That's the way they viewed themselves. They viewed the body as not them. They were apart from their body. And then Paul comes into Corinth and Paul teaches the church that grace in Christ meant that works of law do not lead to righteousness, which is true. He taught that liberty in Christ permits us to do many things, and among them, we could eat anything we desire. So what the Corinthian church did was they combined a little bit of Greek philosophy with this teaching from Paul, and they distorted Paul's intent, put the two together, and they arrived at the problem you now see in the Greek church, where they had taken these views and they had come to believe that if the appetite of the stomach knew no restriction, well, then every other bodily appetite can know no restriction. Because the Greek society had told them that the body was meaningless anyway. And Paul had come in and told them, well, there's no restriction on what you do with your diet because you are free in grace to do what you wish. And they had taken these two and they said, well, we can do whatever we want. The Greek view of the body transferred into their Christian theology. And so they concluded 
that sexual immorality, a sexual appetite, was a freedom that they could enjoy as well. The saying that Solomon gave us, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, was probably a good anthem for the way they would have lived in Greek society. Now you can understand Paul's comments better in verses 12 and 13. He begins by reaffirming what he said, because what he said was correct. He says, all things are lawful, but then he qualifies it because they have taken it and they have distorted it. All things are lawful, but we must consider the effect of our actions, not merely whether the action by itself is lawful. There are things I can do that on the books are lawful, but I can do them in such a way that I harm somebody in the course of my otherwise lawful behavior. Christianity, we know, does not rely on the Mosaic law or any other religious dogma of rules or regulations in order to impart, to give us righteousness. Our righteousness comes by faith alone. And that's why Paul can say all our choices are equally lawful in that regard, because we find our righteousness by faith, not by works. But determining whether what I am doing is sin, that's another question. You see, something can be lawful and can still be sin. We have liberty to do many things, but in the way we practice anything, we must be concerned as to whether we do things that please the Lord. So Paul uses food as his example. Let's look at that example. Paul must have taught this church that there is no spiritual significance to what you eat. Christ fulfills that law. We're not under that law anymore, so we're no longer under dietary restrictions. Eat whatever you want, because food is food. Food has no spiritual significance whatsoever. Nevertheless, it does have a design purpose. And Paul says the food's purpose is for the stomach. What he means is its purpose is to nourish the body. It has a purpose, right? So because it has a purpose with respect to the body, I now have a way to evaluate whether what I do in my eating is good or bad. If I'm fulfilling its purpose in the way it treats my body, then I can say I am doing the right thing with food, if it's making me stronger, if it's making me healthier. But on the other hand, I can take food and make it my enemy. I can abuse it. I can use it to mistreat my body in some way or fashion. And so the point is that all food is lawful, but it can become unprofitable to me if I use it in a sinful way. Paul then draws a comparison from that. He draws a comparison between our appetite for food and our desire for anything else. He says, just as food is intended to promote a stronger and healthier body, likewise, our spiritual liberty has to be used to promote spiritual health, else it's a sin. Which leads him to say in verse 13, you know, your body was not intended for immorality as God designed it. He designed it for his glory. The Lord indwells us for that matter, and therefore his indwelling has made our body his property. And so now the question is, with whatever liberty I might enjoy, am I using that liberty to glorify the Lord's use of my body? Or am I working against those purposes? What we know is going on in the Corinthian church was they were engaged in some kind of sexual immorality, and they were doing so under the guise that all things are lawful. We can assume, and we'll get to this later, But we can assume from what he'll say next that the problem that they are dealing with is in the Greek temples in which prostitution was a common part of temple services and that they were engaging still in those services. Look what he says in verses 14 and 15. He says, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Paul says, I want to challenge your notion of the importance of the body. 
He says in verse 14, you know, the father raised the dead body of Christ. And because of your faith in Jesus Christ, he's going to raise you into a new body as well. So if this body that God has created matters not to him, why does he raise it? Why does he give us a new one in the case of us and a a raised body in the case of Christ? Because the Greek philosophers had taught, well, once the body's dead, that's all and done with. All you have now is a soul. You'll live in a soul only from this point forward. That's clearly wrong. The word of God teaches us that God's design is for the soul to inhabit a body and one day a sinless one in the case of the church. And so if he cares that much for it, we must be concerned with what we do with it even now. More importantly, in verse 15, he says, your body has become part of something larger than yourself. You're part of something called the body of Christ. Each of us members of a whole which represents Christ. If you think of it, it's quite profound. Everyone in here right now who knows the Lord by faith has the spirit of God indwelling us. Collectively, we form a big mass organism that the Lord is inhabiting. One spirit. There's not many spirits. There's only one. He's collectively in all of us. We're like one big mass organism along with the rest of the body of Christ on the earth. And this is the home of Christ on earth for now. His spirit is in us until his body returns. And therefore, you should consider that if you and I choose to engage in sin with our body one way or another, then we are essentially dragging the spirit along with us into the sin that we perform. In a very real sense, you and I take Christ with us into that sin. Now, clearly Christ isn't becoming part of our sin. This sin is a choice we make alone. The point of Paul, though, is clear. The choices we make with our body are not unimportant to the Lord, for he is a bystander with us in that sin. He is a witness to it, if you will. And so Paul asks, should we allow the body that the Lord has occupied to engage with a prostitute, for example? And this is back to what I said a moment ago, that in Greek society, it was common in religious ceremonies for women to be employed in the temples and worshipers, and I use that term loosely, men who would come in seeking the services of the temple prostitutes would have opportunity to hire them. Before these people came to faith in Christ, the Corinthians would have been doing this very thing because it was common in Greek society. And in these temples, they would have come to these prostitutes regularly. Now that they're a believer, well, apparently... They continue to frequent these temples. Apparently, they they can't break the habit, so to speak. That's just the natural result of them failing to see, to appreciate what's really happened in them by the faith that they have in Christ. To understand who they are in Christ and who they no longer are in the sense of that unbelieving, sinful person that Paul described. And of course, then the solution to their problem is to understand how the Lord sees this behavior. And that finishes the chapter Briefly, verses 16 through 20, Paul says, again, with that rabbinical introduction, he says, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the final point Paul makes on this fourth issue. He says, when a man and a woman engage in a sexual relationship, they are becoming one flesh, Paul says. 
He's referring to the words the Lord spoke in Genesis 2.24, where the Lord declares after woman and man in the garden were created, that when a man and a woman come together and intend to marry, they are really modeling themselves on the relationship that God established for the original man and woman in the garden. The original man and woman were literally created from the same flesh. Adam was created out of the ground. Woman was created out of man, not out of the ground again. So that when they came back in union, they were effectively one flesh in reality. Now, today, a woman and a husband who marry are not literally of the same flesh in the same sense, although we all trace ourselves back to Adam, if you want to be literal about it. But in the modeling of the relationship, we have become one flesh again, according to Scripture. So Paul says when a Christian unites with a prostitute, for example, that person has taken a body already filled with the Lord and joined it with a prostitute. Therefore, we have engaged in a grave sin when we sin with our bodies in an immoral act of one kind or another. And remember, in Greek, the word immoral refers to sexual immorality specifically. In a sense, as I said earlier, we're dragging the Lord along with us into that sin. And the church could not see engaging with a prostitute as simply another appetite like the stomachs that could be satisfied at a whim. It carries serious ramifications. In fact, in verse 18, Paul sets forth a very interesting principle, which we don't have time to fully explore today. I'm not sure I'd even know how to fully explore it, but I can state what it says. He says there is a distinction between immoral sins, that is sexual immorality, and other kinds of sin. These sins stand apart in the sense that we are using the Lord's temple in a degrading way. Other sins can be corrected in the sense that through moderation or through abstinence, we can correct our behavior and move away from that sin and our body is is still intact spiritually. We haven't done anything that's irreversible in that respect. If I drink too much, if I eat too much, if I use foul language, if I gossip too much, all of those things can be corrected if I bring my will into obedience with God's will. I can repent. I can change my behavior. It may have lasting consequences for me or for someone else, but my spiritual relationship with others has not been altered. But once I commit a sexual immoral act, I have joined myself to someone else in a way that Scripture says can never be undone can never be reversed. I have become one flesh with someone whom I may never see again. But Paul says this is a serious sin. Now, I want to be clear. Paul is not saying we are less forgiven for that. Paul is not saying that our righteousness in Christ is lessened in that respect. The blood of Christ covers all sin. But an act of immorality is an offense against the temple of the Lord. And as such, being a holy place, we are repeating the sins of the priests in Israel Remember back in the Old Testament, there were times when the priests of the temple would have prostitutes in the temple in Israel. They were sinning inside God's house in a most immoral way. Paul says our body is the temple today. And when we use it in this way, we are repeating that sin. And we don't understand at this point the consequences of that sin. We don't have a way to assess the total outcome of that sin. But we know that something has changed in us for our body now is united with someone else in a way that cannot be reversed. That's why I said we don't have time to explore that in depth, but we ought to give some serious concern for any time our hearts turn towards sexual immorality with another person, for that is something that has serious consequences according to Scripture. So, contrary to the philosophy of the Greek church, the Bible teaches what we do with our body matters and should matter to us. 
It matters to God and it's a matter of our eternal reward. Because we've been bought with a price, the price of blood, of Christ's blood spilled on the cross. So let's consider that fact. Should we be tempted to sin against our body? Let's glorify the Lord with our bodies, Paul says. Never think that those choices don't matter. Know that they do. And understand that as we're considering how we live as a body of Christ, we need to be conscious of the fact that one decision can lead to another. We should never fool ourselves concerning the difference between us and the world. And we ought to live separated, as God has asked us to, in the sense of our purity, in the sense of our hearts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the reminders. First, that we are to be separate Separate in our life and in our attitudes and in our judgments. Not separate, Father, from the mission of reaching men and women with the gospel, but separate in how we live, how we reflect righteousness. And then secondly, Father, I thank you for the reminder that our temptations to sin with our body are serious temptations we must resist. We must live according to the faith we've been given so that we may please you. Let us be a holy people, Father. I thank you as well, Father, for those in us Many of us who have been able, Father, to this point in our lives to stand apart from such things, to resist those opportunities, Father, will depend on our willingness to listen and to rely on the Spirit. But I thank you, Father, that you've given us that that strength to this point. I pray you'd continue. And for those of us, Father, who may have slipped in the past, I pray, Father, that you would give us a heart that knows we've been forgiven that our, blood, that our sins have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And yet at the same time, Father, give us new resolve to never repeat those mistakes so that we may please you from this point forward. And in all things, Father, give us charity and grace for the brother and sister who may be struggling at times with these things. Let us be a source of comfort, of exhortation and encouragement, not one of judgment so that we may all grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Father, knowing that we have all come from the same place and we're all going to the same place and it's all by the same power and the same spirit. We rely on that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.